Greetings, rulers. This is a little bonus episode. It's the back half of our last premium episode with Adnan Hussein. Um, wanted to share it uh, with everyone publicly. Uh, our intro song for this special bonus presentation is from Toriyama Yuji and Morimua Ken. The name of this song is Aerobic Fitness. And the outro is from Takanaka Masayosh. And that song is called The Speed of Love. So without any further ado, please enjoy this bonus episode. to unseen knowledge. And in fact, very often it was thought that the source of invention for poetry actually came from the jinn, the genie, you know, that were, you couldn't see them, but that every poet had a familiar, right. a fam the, you know, who like was amused. that they went into a trance and they transmitted right. the poetic invention and words of a jinn who spoke in this rhymed prose or in a in a poetic register. That was very often uh, often thought to be the case. So cool. I mean, like try complaining about writer's block 
with that idea, you know. Um, my gin also, just didn't show up today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I get yeah. My 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 gin's an idiot. Um, <laughs> plus, the Bedouins didn't have; they had horrible Wi-Fi back then. Just just garbage. So, um, yeah, I think it's something people don't really appreciate. Just like how kind of interwoven uh, poetry and and everything you've described is really is really interwoven into a lot of these societies. Like, it's a beautiful thing. It sounds super fun to me. I mean, um, I kind of wish I had some something similar in the tradition that I grew up in, but we just uh, mostly just talked about TV. Well, I mean, right in this present modern age, I think a lot of these traditions have been disrupted and attenuated all around the world. So in the Middle East, um, even so, especially if you think of all the devastation and disruption that's happened in the last, you know, two decades or so. Um, you know, there's not a lot of time and place for the poets and for relaxed, you know, uh, congregation and mm -hmm. listening to um, an, a medieval epic being declaimed. It was already, of course, a waning tradition with modern technology and forms of media. But in some sense, I think skill and qualities uh, literarily have transferred into other genres of expression and so on. It's just sad, of course, when traditions and genres and modes of expression that had such cultural sway no longer do because yeah. you feel cut off from the deeper sources um, of human heritage uh, when that happens. Well, here's hoping we can it can be revivified a little bit. I mean, obviously, yeah, the material conditions might need to improve in some places before um, that can take place. But uh, I don't know, I just hope I just hope to better understand it myself. That's kind of goal one for myself here. I mean, I think we should probably, maybe with your help, we can over email set up a little reading list for the audience and we can, we'll post that on the episode and maybe I'll do a few readings. I think I'm probably gonna do some uh, some poetry readings on uh, the patron, for the patrons. Well, I think that, sound, that, that sounds great. And I think it's a wonderful uh, project to try and re-engage some of the great literature globally available you know it's fun to be able to go back and read homer and to read some of the uh, other great masterpieces of uh, the western tradition but we should also realize that there are literary traditions that are extraordinary mm. uh, in every human culture and the more we can learn about them the more we can understand and appreciate the rich diversity as well the human you know, condition across different times, both to understand those times and culture our own better, but also to connect with the extraordinary fact that um, despite all the differences, there is something uh, that binds us together uh, Absolutely. As, as humans. I mean, I think there's no, there's no kind of more special feeling in a way than reading something someone wrote thousands of years ago and think, oh man, they understood what, I, what it was like for me right now too. Um, I, I mean, before uh, we can probably transition though, let's transition into contemporary life a little bit here. We've had, uh, what is it now? We've had two months of the Biden administration. I don't know if, if uh, your, your general anxiety level has gone down like mine. I'm, I'm a little like less anxious, but, uh, but a little frustrated right now with some of the kind of internecine inter kind of infighting on the left. I feel as though a lot of people are taking, both taking and um, proffering black pills to people. And there's a lot of uh, negativity and a lot of nihilism, perhaps. Like where, where do you stand on some of, the, some of the stories that we're seeing coming out lately? 
Well, I think um, depends on the story. Uh, you know, um, I think it's fair to say that if we had high hopes for of the Biden administration right off the bat, and I feel that the window is actually a narrow one, so I I, I really feel like it was necessary um, that ambitious uh, improvements. Um, needed to take place quickly and, and early, uh, that if you had high hopes, you might be a little disappointed with the start. There were some wonderful, um, you know, uh, executive uh, orders that were overturned and replaced on the first uh, few days that gave a sense of hope for a new era. And of course, those are significant and they will make a difference. And many people's lives, reversing the Muslim ban, uh, so on. There are a number of um, those kinds of changes have taken terms of a massive socioeconomic uh, agenda, uh, revi reviving some New Deal level. Um, he never promised that he would do those things. It's unrealistic to think that he could be easily pushed in those directions, but it is disappointing that you don't even have a $2,000 check, which that explicitly people did run on. And we did, you know, see uh, people turn out in Georgia to try and achieve Senate for the Democrats. And you have the president and both houses of Congress and, but there are majorities. And if there was the will to really to try and pass some during this pandemic, uh, I feel it could be done, but instead it seems that most of the um, uh, political capital that the administration is being uh, uh, squandered on somebody like uh, 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 some of the appointments. Yeah, near yeah. a tandem, like, uh, you know, that, that seems to be the line in the sand. That's the hill to die upon. Uh, and that really is mistaken, I think. So I don't know if that makes me very pessimistic and the nihilistic side, but everybody's wondering, you know, you know, how can we go forward? Um, mm. If we want to stay engaged in the political process, uh, we have to feel that there's an effective outlet for what our majority positions, what our popular policies you know, if you can't achieve those uh, under this under this system with majorities in two houses and the presidency, uh, <laughs> I feel like uh, there's not a lot of other uh, scenarios you can spin in your mind for how we can have good positive outcomes before 2022. Well, I mean, I wonder, I feel as though growing the kind of the squad in the house is probably one avenue that, that I would like to see people go really hard down, but it seems like the momentum for that might be waning a little bit. Like I think the infighting is kind of, and, and, and people just being so frustrated with both political parties has maybe limited the momentum of that. But I mean, I wish people could still remember that, you know, AOC basically just came out of nowhere to be like this rock star of American politics. And yes, you could criticize her, her for this position or that position, but ultimately she's someone who politically is is pretty close to closer to us than almost anyone we've seen kind of in the national spotlight, um, certainly in my lifetime. So I don't know why we can't just focus, at least when it comes to our electoral strategy on on kind of buttressing those movements. Um, but well, I, feel, I, think I feel like we have to. I mean, yeah. that's really the only option we have. We have to in practical terms when it comes to electoral politics at the federal or national level 
that's the only uh, path that seems to hold out any possible hope. I think if there has been a waning of enthusiasm for it, it has something perhaps to do with the fact that expectations about at least um, the kind of defiant positions they might take against the party establishment haven't been fulfilled. And of course, there are reasons why that might not be possible or may not be wise in certain circumstances. But I think uh, people hoped for and need in some sense, even moral victories, because we've not had any victories in moral or otherwise, you know, the Sanders yeah. uh, campaign being crushed, having to settle for Biden as the alternative to Trump. And, um, you know, so I think people need some moral victories to sustain um, enthusiasm and energy to continue organizing and to have some faith that the electoral uh, path could eventually lead to results. If it seems that they're not willing to risk their position in the short term to try and put on the agenda the outrage and desperation that the rest of the country seems to feel under this terrible economy and the pandemic, people aren't necessarily going to be willing to invest in the longer term with them. And that's the, the concern. So uh, what I would say, though, is that federal politics, I don't know what can be achieved. Much more should be possible to achieve. But given the small numbers, as you point out, of the squad and affiliates, They've been enhanced, but they're still not large enough to really feel confident, perhaps, of being able to remake the direction of the party by exercising certain kind of leverage. So what we should really be doing, it seems to me, is looking to places where we have had some genuine success, and that is at municipal levels, and building the party up or building the progressive element uh, in in politics, whether in the Democratic Party or not, force the Democratic Party to have to take into account local successes in places like we've seen, for example, in Seattle, uh, Kashama Shama Sawant has been really an inspiration. And that's somebody I would like to learn a little bit more about uh, the kind of organizing that has undergirded the successes that she has managed to have in Seattle to get the minimum wage passed. See, that's another question or a problem. You know, the fact that the Biden administration is pulling back from um, the minimum wage, or at least not uh, going to fight for it, it seems, um, and put it into the COVID relief bill, it just suggests that we've got a long road at the federal, federal level, but there are possibilities at more local and municipal levels that Maybe we should turn our attention there. Yeah, yeah. I think that's. I think that's really what. I think that's a really good um, strategy. I mean, in terms of what what those those kind of easy wins or that low hanging fruit again, something you can say that look, this is a victory and it can kind of give people some morale and a little bit of a boost. Um, I don't know. Part of me just wishes that we could spend three hundred and sixty four days a year organizing uh, and acting locally and close to home, and then one day a year that's when we focus on, okay, we're going to vote for so-and-so, but, but right. not kind of obsess about it the rest of the time, because it is such a easy kind of sideshow and a horse race to get caught up in. Um, I agree. And I think that's one of the uh, issues that I have with federal politics. And even on some level with the squad and AOC is that it is a little bit like celebrity 
politics. That's a form of celebrity politics that the same structures we have in popular culture where we follow their tweets and we're interested in their stories and we look at their kind of personal dramas as extensions of our own aspirations and affiliations in some way. That's not a really healthy way to approach politics. And I understand the value of the theatrical and I understand also the need to communicate in the alternative mechanisms that are available through social media and so on. But we can't mistake sending out tweets and that's for us ourselves. We can't mistake tweeting and posting and uh, all of that as activism. That's not actually activism. That's not organizing. And we're not gonna be able to make more fundamental and structural changes um, on the surface level of expressing our views in that sort of way. It doesn't necessarily have the same political meaning and force that we imagine, but that's how we engage in so much now is through communication. Um, and our politicians also are, are uh, inhabiting a kind of position as celebrities in a political culture that is a lot like our popular culture. And that I don't think is a recipe for future success, I, I think. I could not agree more. I mean, I, I really think I, I wanna try and find ways even just with one, what, what, within what I'm doing and what I do to kind of break out of um, that kind of performativity or that, that kind of um, entertainment without any kind of part participation. That was one thing, I, one thing I really liked about doing the roundtable episode a few episodes back was here's a chance kind of for more people to get involved and it's not just everyone listening to two people talking and feeling something like, oh, okay, well, they agree with me. So I get some kind of satisfaction from this conversation. You know, my, my perspective kind of aligns with theirs. Therefore, something has been achieved. Like, I think, I think we need to definitely break out of any kind of, uh, exactly what you said, like Twitter is not, you know, activism. It's not organizing. Social media is not organizing. It's, it can be um, something that's, that's involved in it or a component, but um, yeah, I, I, even even with this podcast, I don't I don't want it to be the type of thing that people just listen to passively. I want I want people to be participating in even just their own lives as much as possible. I don't I don't want to be the guy you know telling them what to think. Certainly, and if I ever was, that would be <laughs> that would be a major crime against thought itself. Let's let's be perfectly honest. Right, right. Well, that's that's going to be interesting to see how one can use these media to do something more. Uh, I agree. As somebody who also, you know, uh, participates on a couple of podcasts and other shows, uh, including this one, uh, to my great delight, um, it's itself not enough. Like, it's wonderful to have these conversations. I think they're important to have. We do need to educate ourselves, learn about things, have opportunities to think together. But then we also have to find ways in which it can be more um, effective uh, in organizing us, more meaningful uh, in achieving our, our, our aims. Um, it's a little bit like uh, sometimes I think about the classroom, the meaning of the classroom. Obviously, education is something that I'm very committed to. I, I teach students and hope that they benefit and derive something significant, not only in terms of the content of the knowledge that uh, may be uh, involved in the course, the readings and so on, but also the ways of thinking and the skills that they may develop and the consciousness 
um, and the confidence to articulate themselves. But that we, one always hopes, of course, that this will translate into people, A, leading you know, more fulfilled lives and B, doing things for others in their society with the knowledge that they have to improve uh, everyone's condition. That's the hope, that's the, the sort of uh, rationale for, for, uh, for it all, the liberal humanistic education supposed to make us better as people, better as citizens, uh, and more engaged in our, our, our lives and our society. Um, but it doesn't seem that it always necessarily happens and it's possible to have conversation and inquiry that is very enriching in various ways, um, very satisfying and very engaging, but not necessarily impel us uh, to remake our world in any way. And so how does that happen? How can we make that happen? Um, it happens with me, me telling everyone to put down your phone, take out the headphones, go outside and remember only God can make a tree. Okay. Just, just remember that. Right. <laughs> I'm mad as hell. Hopefully someday we'll, we'll get them to be all mad as hell and screaming out their windows. Um, yeah. It's just, it's, it's interesting to me because I, I really feel like one of the reasons I even started this podcast was I, I started to feel like even my favorite podcasts were just getting a little too um, down in the dumps and a little too, okay, well, who's, we're competing to see who can kind of in the most hilarious way depress everybody by, mm. by pointing out how incredibly fucked up and pointless everything is, which don't get me wrong. I think a lot of things are really fucked up and pointless and the world is an incredibly messed up place, but I, I want us to not get, not stop there. That's my goal. Well, I'm glad you say that because I find that I often can get pulled into that just because that's where my mind goes when I take an analytical look. At of course, I would have world. to, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, we have to have um, some refreshment of the spirit and the soul to keep uh, going forward at the very minimum. But also, uh, I really like the idea of having a little mirth and a little joy um, and yeah. to see, not, that you, not to take things lightly, but to put things in perspective so that we actually have um, not just a self-generating negativity that itself won't produce anything um, new or creative um, or active, you know, you can get into, you know, you can get into a loop, um, a mutual negative feedback loop as you're, as you're pointing out. And I do one thing I really love about the podcast and all the episodes that I've listened to and, and, and heard, and I think it's because you set that as, um, as the tone is that um, there's something enlivening um, mm. about the conversations that, that, that you're having. So I love it, and I think you're right on that. That's um, we need to have alternatives and antidotes to just the immiserating sense of how um, yeah. hopeless and awful the situation is. Yeah, I feel that way. I mean, I think, and I think a little joie de vivre goes a long way too. Even just with making, you know, making friends and, and building movements and building solidarity and just, you know, getting what you need to get done day to day too, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's funny though. Cause I think we're so, we're so kind of emissary or like a, everyone's been so like kind of eviscerated psychically and emotionally. Like I was watching this hockey game last night and there was a whole 20 minute thing in the period break about this player who I think he has had some struggle with 
uh, addiction or mental health. And he was just going on about his self-care routine. And I realized like, I'm so sick of hearing this term self-care because like, yes, of course it's intuitive. Go for a walk, take care of yourself, get some sleep. But like, why, how about we take care of each other a little bit too? This whole, this whole concept of like self-care, I feel like is nudging people a little bit towards, okay, just deal with your own fucking problems. If you're sad, take care of yourself. And I don't really think that's the way. So I'll go on my little rant about that too, just to, to yeah, tell us off yeah. here. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I look forward to uh, having more conversations. Uh, we definitely will will talk more literature for sure. I think I think we'll do um, I think we'll do do a series of discussions on that. And I'm I really I really appreciate you coming on to talk always, and and it's always really fun and enlivening. And um, I think uh, I think there could not be a better person to to have a, as a partner on this journey of both figuring out well, how messed up everything is and and realizing you know how how to have some joy in life regardless. Absolutely. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. It sounds like a fun journey and I hope listeners, um, you know, find it entertaining, interesting, and um, a bit of a relief as well. You can only hope. Yeah. Okay, dude. Well, why don't we leave it there? Um, I'll shoot you a message when this is out. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I know I said I was going to try and take you for 90 minutes today, but I think it's Friday and I think we should probably go go back to our loved ones and check in on them, make sure they're still alive. Um, good. And I know you were, you're working really hard. Maybe just tell people really quick uh, where they can find your stuff. Well, you can um, listen to my podcast, The Mudgeless. Uh, that's at anchor.fm slash the dash mudgeless, M-A-J-L-I-S. And I also uh, am a co-host on Gorilla History. G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A. And that's both of them are on all the main platforms. And you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Adnan A. Hussein, one S-A-I-N. Yeah. And uh, I'll just, I'll dedicate this episode to Nicholas. Thank you so much for becoming a patron, Nicholas. Um, reminder, actually, if you want to support the show, you can also check out uh, our sister podcast, Handkerchief Dynasty, which is on YouTube now, shockingly. Um, and uh, we're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash night rule. I've released my, my fourth mixtape for people that are enjoying the music. So, uh, so definitely sign up to check those out. And actually, you know, I'm probably going to make this a premium episode. So if you're listening to it, they're probably, they're probably patrons already. <laughs> um, okay, dude. Well, always a pleasure. Always look forward to talking to you and, uh, and enjoy the rest of your weekend. And we'll, uh, we'll hook up again real soon. 